That's a bit of Robin Hood Gardens. It's a bit of Robin Hood Gardens. Yeah, that's wow. a fragment of Frank Lloyd Wright for a, um, a fascinating development that he did in Chicago. And we have it here because we actually have a drawing for it as well. How did that come to your way? That came off eBay, as things do. Welcome to 2024 and welcome to our first episode of Super Urbanism of the Year. My name is Tim Abrahams. On the podcast, I talk to people who are doing interesting things in the field of architecture and urbanism. I want to see them and meet them and talk to them. The people whose ideas provoke, inspire and challenge me. Neil Hophouse is one of those people. If you don't know Neil, simply he collects drawings by architects and he writes about them very well and makes great exhibitions. But that's not all. Before I met him in 2012, Neil was governor of the London School of Economics, where he was also chair of the advisory board for the Famous Cities programme. When I met him, he was trustee of the Canadian Centre for Architecture in Montreal, where I was working. At roughly the same time, he was also trustee of the Sir John Soane's Museum. Now, though, he runs the Drawing Matter Trust, which I helped in a tiny, tiny way to establish to explore the role of drawing in architecture. For a decade now, fortunate architecture students, a fair number, have been able to go down to an old farm in Somerset he owns, which he's slowly done up with buildings by Stephen Taylor and Hugh Strange, where he keeps his collection. Obelisk designed by the Smithsons down there and columns by Alvaro Caesar. It's just a lovely place full of texture and architectural moments. But I was really surprised then to read in January that he wants to move his collection. A bit gutted, in fact, because it's such a lovely place. The times that I've got my hands on Neil's collection in Somerset have been some of the most informative, engaging, fascinating experiences I'm lucky to have had in the NIST field. So I went down to Somerset last week to ask him why he wanted to upset this little utopia by moving. We will first talk about what is novel in his organisation and the openness of the collection. But I must have asked Neil how he wanted to change things up after a decade of success and what was this he was hearing about new partnerships. What we were interested in was that drawings don't like getting hot and cold and dry and wet on a daily basis. And the idea of building it in this cross-laminated timber was that the mass of the building keeps the internal temperature very stable and the timber absorbs the moisture. And what we were trying to do was suggest to the wider archival community that there were much cheaper and simpler ways of storing drawings. And it's something that we feel that we can do here at Drawing Matter, both in terms of programmes, but also in terms of how we handle them and the building. So many of the institutions that we compete with have, in a sense, allowed themselves to be defeated by the very things, the drawings, that they are there to preserve and disseminate. And the sketchbooks are a very good lead into that because my friends in museums all say, O'Neill, we love sketchbooks, but they do represent a conservation problem and our exhibition team say, look, you can only show one page at a time. Whereas from the point of view of Drawing Matter and our specific project, they seem to me, we're interested in the design process and the sketchbooks take one as close as one can to that. This cabinet, I always joke that we keep it nearest to the door so that we'll get it out of here if there's ever a fire. And it's certainly the thing that I feel most responsible for, in the sense partly that, in general, the living architects whose 
sketchbooks we have here have actually given us the sketchbooks. We haven't bought them. And it, it often represents the culmination of a process by which we've approached them for more finished drawings from their archive. And the sketchbooks have always been the things that they've wanted to hold on to till the last. So these black boxes here are all Tony Fretton sketchbooks. They are only for the Listen Gallery. So that the 47 sketchbooks for a single seminal project. And it was always the basis on which I had my discussions with Tony that the Listen Gallery was his kind of coming-of-age project and the one that I would love to present in the, in the collection. And then here are the first 70 sketchbooks in Alvaro Caesar's career, which when we have students, this is the material that works hardest in terms of what they want to see, what they get excited about. Why do you think that is? When Caesar gave me the first sketchbook, he said there, now you have a hundred of my mistakes. And I think it's very reassuring for students to see that the process of the design is not, not something you arrive at immediately and to understand all the levels of thinking that have gone into a project. There was a lot of discussion with Caesar about what to take from his archive. It was important also that we didn't want to compromise what was left in terms of the interests of the other institutions. And, and in practice, what happened was that it must have gone six or seven times to Porto. I spent the mornings looking at the archival material, and in the afternoons, if he was free, he and I would then go and look at the buildings. Eventually, we settled on not just Evera, but all the social housing projects that Caesar had done, starting really in the middle of the Portuguese Revolution. Evera has 1,200 houses. So I felt that it was a career turning point where he had literally all the material from the sketchbooks through the sketches, the development ideas, the models, the technical drawings, the big planning drawings. So one could study a whole project completely. Also, critically, yeah, this is when he began drawing in sketchbooks. And the reason for that, in his account, was that he used to travel every Tuesday night from Porto to Evera, which is south of Lisbon. Spent the night in the train, caught a ferry, caught another train, worked all day on site, returned the following evening in the same way. So he arrives Thursday morning in the office in Porto, exhausted, with bits of paper in every pocket. And eventually, somebody in the office goes to the corner shop, buys him a sketchbook, and says, please, Mr. Caesar. So it's a lo lovely story, actually. And what's also very nice about the Evera sketchbook is that the black ones are standard educational notebooks from stationers in Porto. The red ones come from Evera because the communist mayor of Evera had decreed that the school children would only draw in bright red notebooks. Can we have a look at one? Yes, yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. There it is, there there it red is. One. bright red one. And... Actually, what was fantastic about this one was that it was done, as you see, over literally three days in 1977. 18th, um, 19th and 20th of March. And it was not his first visit to Evera, but it was the one where he developed really all the ideas for housing. And about five years ago, we used this physical object. I took it to Lisbon and Caesar and I had a public discussion in which I was arguing that all the ideas for the project had surfaced in the first three days and Caesar was arguing. It was a staged argument, but it worked incredibly well. And that's the wonderful thing about the sketchbooks is that they keep the discussion focused always. 
what Portuguese society was dealing with was a huge influx of basically dispossessed agricultural workers coming into the city. So it created this strange anomaly where the Alentejo, where Evera sits, is full of grumpy right-wing landowners and the big cities and Evera is the capital are very left-wing. And what the mayor's problem was how to extend the city of Evora, this wonderful medieval and Baroque city with Roman ruins in the middle, for all these new inhabitants on equal terms to the great town on the hill. And that was the brief to Caesar, that it wasn't to be a suburban housing estate. It was to have the same urban values as the main city. There wasn't enough money to build many of the public buildings and so in that sense it wasn't fully realised. The key aspect of this project for me is this viaduct that runs through it. Which was a reference to, among other things, an aqueduct that threads its way through the old city of Evera and Caesar's argument to the housing association who were building it and to the other clients including the city was that this would carry all the services and save putting them underground. Did that transpire? When they came to install fibre optic a couple of years ago it was the easiest thing in the world because they didn't have to ring it up the road. What strikes me about this picture is, is it a Byron? It's no. Byron. It's a Byron. No, no. The point is that he's, he's drawing for himself here. Yeah, There's yeah. no sense of a, another audience. He's recording things or trying out ideas. You can see such strong urbanity in it. Yeah. That's the thing. No, no, the Byron really lends it this kind of scribbled energy. No, it's very powerful. It's very powerful. This is the bank building. But they're interspersed also with his sketches and of then, people. Yeah. Didn't really seen on the train. Yeah. So they're real. That's a wonderful sheet. Yeah. That's half building, half person. Half building, half person, exactly. Do you still have your place in Evera? No. Sadly, it was Caesar's own house and I only rented it from him. But it, he's actually lent the keys to the University of Evera now. They have access. What was so wonderful about the house was that he used it to demonstrate to people that with very small interventions, a bit of marble here, a slightly more finished piece of joinery there, you could dignify what were really these very modest houses. Fantastic. Is ever, in terms of the archive, is it the project to which you have most material? Yes, there are probably three or four thousand drawings forever alone. And it was purchased quite early on? It was purchased relatively early, early on. More or less simultaneous with the shift in our ideas about collecting and the move to Somerset. Yes, we were established here, but we were still thinking about how to make the collection really reflective of drawing up to the present day. That is, the bulk of the 16th and 17th and 18th and 19th century material that's here, I already had in the collection. But it was very clear that if we were going to engage students, particularly practitioner students, the only way to do it actually was to start them with a Caesar sketchbook and then show them drawings from two or three hundred years earlier, where it was then very easy to see that the architects were often addressing the same problems. Um, mm -hmm. It anchors the post-war collections. And we learnt a huge amount from it in terms of what we then went on to collect. That is, by judging people's reactions to what they were looking at and the enthusiasm and excitement, that then starts to inform other choices about what architects to approach, what other material we need. Were these historic parts of the collection to which you referred? Some are before, some it's a it's a slightly fortuitous display of material, but it in a way speaks quite well, at least to the 
20th century part of the collection and to our particular interest in urbanism. This is by Morpurgo, who was an architect working in Rome in the 1930s, actually Jewish, so in a very tricky situation. Morpurgo was Jewish? Morpurgo was Jewish. And this is a presentation drawing for Mussolini of the scheme for which he won the public competition for the redevelopment of the tomb of Augustus. So if you can imagine, we're standing here on the Ripetta, on the banks of the Tiber, the tomb itself is behind the church to the left and the two sort of rationalist buildings that you see there form the entrance to the tomb. But in fact what they were doing was removing a whole chunk of medieval city between the three church buildings. But it's a very elaborate and complicated production. The combination of drawings, models, photography, collage, then drawn again on top of that. It's been drawn from photographies of models, but it is a drawing. But it is a drawing. Or drawing on top, in some cases, of oh, the right. photography. From our point of view, it's very interesting for the collection because of the sheer complexity. And it's got a really haunting... Is it night? <laughs> it's a very strange thing. It's a very strange thing. What material is this? It's graphite, graphite on this surface of photographic paper. It just looks... It's just... Deadly, it, nightly. It just, yeah, and a bit sinister. Yeah, it's sinister as hell. How big is it? About two metres by one and a half? Something like that. It's, and it's right at the end of the room. But then you've got, obviously, beneath it... So this is a, a big painting, actually, by Aldo Rossi, by whom we have a lot of material, and this is... Late 70s, I think it's 78... I made a rule quite early on that I would resist Aldo Rossi material from the 80s and 90s just because the architecture becomes less interesting and his role in the discussion changes. So I have always seen this as the end point of Aldo Rossi material. We have maybe 40 drawings from before that, but almost nothing from afterwards. And it's a cityscape again. It's again a cityscape with these familiar forms. They make a very funny contrast, and I always feel that the Peter and Alice Smithson collage makes a very nice counterpoint with them. This is a wonderful part of their competition submission for the Golden Lane competition, so 1952 or 53. Um, it's what became Robin Hood Gardens, essentially, but it 20 is. years later. I thought it was Robin Hood Garden. What's wonderful about it, and we didn't know this when it came to us, was that they've used a Ministry of Defence photograph of Coventry two weeks after the bombing. So it's not London, but they're making a rhetorical point because Golden Lane, just north of the Barbican, was where all the bombs fell. And so it was a devastated area. And it really is a post-war rebirth, isn't it? Yeah. It's got this... But it's interesting, they're longing for the fabric of the of the city it's not yeah. it, it, although it stands out they're, they're aiming for something of those buildings aren't they it's an essay about context and not denying the grim circumstances in which it was being constructed from the ruins and this this is a big rendering from Norman Foster's office for all the services for a big office building and it actually came out of an exhibition that Fashi Musabi did at the Royal Academy one summer exhibition, where she asked architects to submit service and construction drawings that were nevertheless exhibitable. What a brilliant um, idea. It actually, it was a brilliant idea. As Fashid and I said, because I was helping her with the collection of things, after a bit, we simply christened it Getting Old Men to Decide When to Press Print. <laughs> 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 um, but actually some wonderful things came and we ended up giving the prize that year to Richard Rogers and to Herzog de Moran because they were building buildings of such complexity that the service renderings were in fact wonderful objects.
I had hoped Rogers would be in there. So at the end of the Royal Academy show, I simply bought, or in some cases was given, all the drawings that we had selected. It was a way also of addressing this question which looms very large, which is where exactly analogue drawings stands besides these sort of digital renderings in a collection of this kind because we don't collect digital files, we only collect objects, the output. And in a way, I think it's served quite well to carry the ideas forward. And there's a non-drawing there. I always say we don't really collect models. But when it comes to Le Corbusier, you make a difference. Exactly. This is a a plaster model at the scale of a hand for the famous open hand monument that was built in Chandigarh. But it was also, it's a kind of liet throughout. That's right, exactly. He, exactly. Keep, he keeps coming back to this. It's there already in the 30s as an idea. And there's a nice ambiguity about it because the, the finished version for which we have actually got the drawing is much more like a hand. This is more like a dove. This might have been two or three years before the final mm-hmm. project. And he was still evolving his ideas. Amazing. Those are the things on the wall. And then you've got... How many? One, two, three, four, eight. So yeah, thirty-two yeah. drawings, and then the side drawings, yeah. and you've got huge, oh, yeah. huge so we, portfolios under there. Basically, we organise the material by there's this wonderful thing called the alphabet. What's really nice is that it makes for. So this is on the M draw here. M. What it means is that there are wonderfully random conjunctions of names in the folders. Is that an air raid shelter? That's an air raid shelter with these Minotzi sketches for the house for a cosmopolitan in Rome in the 1780s. Perhaps you could just describe the drawing. So this is a house in the form of a globe set in a colonnade. And it was the great recurring theoretical project of the 1780s, originally formulated by Verdoyer, who got to Rome in 1782, and then played with a spherical building as a house. And so this is a kind of yeah. an ideas project. It's an ideas project. It's a French Enlightenment stroke revolutionary project, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely. Just so you get the feel of the yeah, kind of yes, yeah. Oh my word, what's that? This is somebody called McMahon who was working in New York in the 1920s and 1930s doing skyscraper renderings. And this is clearly not a real scheme, but gives you, a, I think, a wonderful window. It's got strong Rockefeller vibes, hasn't it's it? It's got very strong Rockefeller vibes. And then in the background, there's the Sky Zeppelins yeah. and, and the beams of light and an imaginary double level transport system Something with similar. trains below and cars above. So this is the upper end of Fifth Avenue, I think. And is it done in charcoal? It's done in charcoal. Incredible. And, um, so this is a huge plan chest so this is what we call oversize. Wow. And oh, my days. So these are the enough we've just... Is that a section for Epcot Centre? It is exactly a section for Epcot Centre. <laughs> well done, Tim. <laughs> so, I mean, you talk about the kind of resonances within the, the drawer. That, it's a spherical building which just looks exactly, exactly. like the... Uh, Minotzi. Minotzi. Minotzi and Verdoyer. Yeah. These came up in a small sale in Florida three or four weeks ago. So this is your most recent acquisition? No, it's just put in here, I think, in the last couple of days. So this is the plan, but this actually is also fun. That's, that's... This is also Disney World. That's Disney World. For a castle. And that's a blueprint, is it? That's a blueprint. Who's this for? It would have been a technical drawing used on site. 
We have a, a wonderful blueprint next door which describes the various technical disciplines and how they're involved in individual projects. So it's, a, it's almost a metre tall and it's the, 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 the vision of Disney World that we all know. It's the fairy tale castle, but this is how it should be built. Wow. And that's the plan then. This is the kind of heights of the different parts, top of crenellation. Oh my word, that's great. And that's the plan of the castle. That's the plan of the castle, yeah. Oh, great. And then actually, I like this conjunction. So this is... London Town. Carlos Dinis. Is this uh, Carlos Dinis's picture of London? This is Carlos Dinis's Tell, picture of London. Who's Carlos Dinis? Tell the people. Carlos Dinis described himself actually as an illustrator, worked in California through the 1950s and 60s, all the way through to the early 90s. And his job was working for big architectural practices and transforming their technical drawings into material that could be understood by the client. And here, this is actually the rough for a finished drawing. Here, he is imagining himself hovering above the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral and seeing across the city to Canary Wharf in the far distance. And the purpose of this drawing was to demonstrate that Canary Wharf wasn't so far from the city. So it actually has a rhetorical uh, purpose. Yeah, it looks quite close. <laughs> it does look quite close. It was always said that he added the Spitfire to the image at the last moment to engage Prince Charles, who was coming to look at an exhibition. Do you, do you believe that story? Listen, Sinone Vero. That's the story. That's the story. Lots of stuff gets said around drawings that isn't true. <laughs> uh, the other thing was that the developers were so excited by Dennis's renderings, both these aerial renderings, but also the kind of close-ups, that they asked him to design a lot of the public landscape at Canary Wharf. A, lo a, lo a lot of untrue things are said around buildings, but is, is that true? That is true. Yeah, that, that bit is true. That bit is true. That's that incredible. Is true. He refines technique in California. It's yeah. advertising rendering, that incredible, refined 50s, 60s New York technique of it and uh, the Mylar and all that and then it's but it's London and it's the 1980s you could look at Neil's collection for hours you honestly could but I wanted to sit down with him and talk about his plans where they came from where they were going when did you start collecting architectural drawings it really began more or less as an accident in the first let's say eight or ten years in the 1990s there was definitely no plan and what it, what it really did was come out of an observation that the museums who I knew very well who were collecting architectural material were doing so in a way that was to me very surprising that is there was a, a, a terrible temptation to which they always succumb to buy the drawing that looked most like the finished building and I kept saying to them when we're looking at drawings by an engraver or a sculptor, it's never the final drawing you want. It's always the preparatory drawing which shows the process of thought. So I think that exposed for me a confusion about how architectural drawings are understood. And I understand the pressure they're under to represent the impossible, which is to bring architecture into the body of the museum. But I questioned whether they were going about it the right way and began to understand that there were fantastic opportunities to collect material that told one what one actually needed to know about how 
how buildings were designed, not what they are when they were designed. And that, I think, is the core of the collecting principle and what has become the core of the collection. It's worth adding that as we then developed our own public, who were and remain people actively involved in architectural practice or architectural history, whether students or professionals, that the responses of those visitors in the early years to the collection when it was still in London and increasingly as it was down here, began then to inform our choices what sort of drawings we needed. You mentioned the conversations with museums and your understanding of what they were doing. You were in a position to have those conversations. I I should explain, sorry, that that my um, first career was as an art dealer and I ended up, a large part of my business towards the end was selling old master drawings and old master paintings to museums, mostly in America. And all of these places had architecture collections. What then happened 25 years ago was that I became, for better or worse, very interested in the internal problems of those institutions. They were actually more interesting than the art dealing problems, though less rewarding. And so I got drawn into a kind of very different role, which was as a museum trustee or advisor, and did a lot of work for the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, for instance, and then was asked to be a trustee of the Canadian Centre for Architecture and of the Soane Museum in London. Um, who are the mother institutions on the two different constitutions. And so that was an irresistible opportunity for me. And to some extent, I think it's informed a lot of the things that we have done since because I'm always saying to myself, look, we're a small institution with, in institutional terms, a very small collection and with many freedoms that the institutions don't have. And that's an opportunity for us to try out things, not just in terms of storage and handling, but above all, in terms of programming and presentation, that for whatever reason, the museums have given up doing. I see drawing matter as a guinea pig, which if the institutions choose, might suggest other ways of performing their task. I'm not dogmatic about it. I just say, we do it this way seems to work maybe there's something in it for you when did you decide to set up drawing matter i set up the charity in 2012 and it more or less coincided with the move of the collection down to somerset it was very clear that there were all kinds of things in terms of publishing and active teaching that would be best done in a charitable frame. And that situation has endured. The collection is put, if you like, at the disposal of the charity, who then make the very best use of it that it can. The huge shift has been, partly, I have to say, my grim experience of an art dealer. I never wanted to meet another private collector who kept all his drawings or paintings in a locked box with very privileged access. It seemed pointless and silly and a purely personal gratification. And it became so clear once we started having student groups here that we had a sort of instrument if you like, that could powerfully address questions that they were wrestling with as designers or indeed as historians. To give you an idea, as a way of getting the conversation started, we encourage any student group coming to go online, look at the collection catalogue and choose a drawing. And when they arrive, they have to be ready to talk about why they chose that drawing and why it interested them, what it means in terms of their own work and so on. 
When that works really well, you start with a group of 15 and 15 drawings on the wall, and two hours later, you might have 100 drawings scattered over the tables and on the walls. And that's simply an indication of where the conversation has led. Drawing matter has evolved from being a collection to actually being, I don't want to sound too pompous, but a forum, a place for conversations, which the drawings enable. I am much more interested in talking about the programming opportunities than I am about um, what a wonderful collection it is. Take me through perhaps a a typical month or even a typical week. Uh, Who's coming here? Our most successful has always been a passionate tutor in an architecture school who understand how important drawing was in their formation as an architect. In general, these are people who are also practicing architects the other three or four days a week. But they understand what dialogue drawing meant for their formation and they want to communicate that to their students or they come with some very specific design problem. It may be a building typology or it may be something as mundane as a staircase, but they're all wrestling with it. So you have people come down and look at a series of staircases? So we have people come down and just look at staircase drawings. Why that's interesting is that they can look at a staircase drawing from the middle of the 16th century, one from the middle of the 17th century, one from the middle of the 18th century, 50 from the 19th century, and hundreds from the 20th century. But these architects are still doing the same thing. They're still trying, they're still counting the number of steps, the height that the people have to move through and how much distance they have. The calculations are exactly the same. And that is hopefully reassuring and stimulating for the visitors. So that's the standard visit. And we do that with Matt and I were just looking at it. It's probably about 50 universities every year. And the formula is different in each case. Sometimes these are undergraduate students, sometimes they're master's students. And the sophistication of what we show them varies. We also then have sworn never to call them seminars, but let's call them research workshops where academics come from all over the world specifically to talk about original material in the archive with the drawings in front of them. When it doesn't work is when they have spent the previous three weeks writing an essay which they then read to the audience when they arrive here. Where it works really well is if they're confident enough to actually talk to and about the drawings that are in front of them. That's nice for us because we feel we're generating knowledge around the drawings, but it also is a very direct way for us to generate content for the Drawing Matter website because we tend either to record or film those sessions, and so we might publish them two or three weeks later on the site. Do you feel that you have a call or a role to encourage the practice of drawing? I'm very resistant to specific missions and above all resistant to any kind of research agenda of our own. We have learnt most and been most productive when we have allowed people to come here and take their own direction through the material. I certainly don't want to be the old fogey who's collecting analogue drawings at the end of an era. Put it at its simplest, drawing is a verb, not a noun. These things are simply a medium for ideas and that to some extent the architecture profession, for reasons which I completely understand and have a lot to do with economics, probably over-adopted digital techniques and that the balance needs to be addressed and is, I sense, in the last five years being actively addressed. 
that may end up with new forms of programming, which simply creates the space within the digital media for the same kind of speculation as you find in a hand drawing or a sketchbook. I'm fine with that. I just want to get people to think. In terms of the history of drawing matter, it's been a decade it's been a decade since we've really been operating at full. 2014 was when we were talking about yeah. the very, very beginnings of drawing matter and there was a lot of conversations about what it might be and what it could be. Then you're probably a better witness, Tim. You can tell me where we thought it was going. I could make a pretty good guess that we've ended up somewhere very different. We will talk about this, but the journey is long. This is just a, a beginning stage in it. The decision to locate here in Somerset was a key one. The, the reality was that I felt the collection had grown too large to house in London and I happened to own this derelict farmyard and was interested in what I could do down here. I was incredibly lucky to find a really outstanding curatorial team who lived locally and were interested in what was happening. So the the farmyard was an accident. It's become, for me, in a minor way, a problem because of the interventions that we've done over the last 10 years or so down here. It's become its own site of architectural tourism in a way that I often feel is distracting from the core mission. Every now and then, people, old enough, particularly from universities in America, really put their foot in it by saying, yes, we'd like to bring some students, and could we come on this day? And I say, no, we've actually got other students in the archive. And they go, oh, don't worry, we can just look at the farmyard. And at which point I tell them politely to stay in Rhode Island. <laughs> to choose a generic part of the United States. To choose a generic. No offence to any listeners from Rhode Island. <laughs> that, that's very interesting. The 10 years in which you've been here, a lot of people from a lot of places have come here and a lot of people has, have looked at the collection. How has the collection changed in that time? We've certainly gone on adding to it and in the initial period of being here the process of adding was very fast in part because I felt that there was a wonderful opportunity to gather up material from these great figures of the 1960s and 1970s and 1980s who were just beginning to think to do with archives and who whose work would get the attention of students who wanted to come here. Caesar is a good example. Super Studio, the Italian radical practice, was at a very interesting moment when I first went to see them where they actually had got really bored about talking about themselves as a collective with no single figurehead or whatever and were longing to talk about how they had each contributed the five of them to the reputation of the practice and that was fantastic for me because you know Adolfo Natalini let me buy these sketchbooks which had never been seen before from which it became clear how the ideas were generated within Super Studio but there was also a effort to gather together material from Rem Koolhaas's early years to give you a very good example there were people who had been part of the office up till the end of the 80s who had material probably weren't sure what to do with it and the period from the early 70s to the end of the 80s was for me the critical period in terms of Rem's work of the OMA's work not because the building subsequently haven't been interesting but just because the ideas were articulated in that key period 
and radical new forms of representation. And very radical new forms of representation. So lots of ideas were constantly being tried out, and that was what you wanted. The same could be said in a slightly different way of the material we have from Zaha Hadid. But always with this idea that we want to capture the seminal radical moment, partly just to be practical, partly because unlike the RIBA, we cannot say we'll take it all. And because realistically architects are very lucky to have one radical moment and then what happens is that the wind changes and they're condemned by the market essentially to repeat themselves that's why super studio very elegantly disbanded itself in the mid-70s because in a way the world had changed around it and they no longer had the same radical voice as the collection has grown we have another pressure we've discovered which is that the rule has always been that any new acquisition and it doesn't matter if it's a single drawing or a whole archive of or a whole body of work or a project has to shift the balance of the collection and as the collection's got bigger of course a single acquisition that's asking more and more of a single acquisition but that's an enjoyable game it relates to the question how has the collection changed the answer from what you're saying is immeasurably by each individual acquisition hopefully Hopefully. i I can't say that we didn't make mistakes (laughs) Um, but it's also a process of constant review and internal discussion when you say internal discussion who with both with the curatorial team or the registrarial team but it's also with the programming team it's not just Susie who has to catalogue a bundle of drawings. It's also my colleague Matt who has to see the drawing as being useful in some workshop context. All other colleagues who see a new acquisition as a really interesting opportunity to publish something. I talk about drawing matter as being everything that goes on in this room where we're sitting. But the reality is that probably uh, 3,000 people come every year to this room another fifteen or 20,000 will see drawings that we send out for exhibition in public exhibition around the world, but a 1,000 people a day come to the Drawing Matter website. What is the most surprising aspect of the way in which it's engaged with? Is it just the, the sheer volume, or is it...? I think it was very important not to have a specific intellectual agenda. The format of the site is somebody writing intelligently about a drawing or series of drawings. So there's no editorial agenda that says we need more old drawings or we need more drawings from the collection. There's this huge community out there of people who are interested in writing about drawings and people send us the material, we commission it, we put it up when it comes. And I think that the success of the site has something to do with that. We're obviously entering a different phase of drawing matter. We've been thinking about the limitations of this location in Somerset for quite a long time. Uh, It suddenly in the autumn became very clear to us that in order really to pursue to the limits the various inquiries that we've been making about the nature of architectural teaching, it would be much more effective and convenient for our visitors if we were based in London. And um, 10 days ago, we put out a kind of open call, partly about possible locations, but more importantly, about the nature of what we were going to try and do in London and calling for proposals for partnership ventures 
That's pretty brave to do it that way. There could be nothing Zero coming. Response. Yes, no, that's true. You, 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 you were willing to say there's been plenty of responses. It, it was fantastic. Went out on the Saturday. By the Tuesday evening, we had 40 or 50 very enthusiastic responses. 40 and or 50? At different levels. Yeah. Okay, so some people had ideas about where we could locate the collection. But the majority were keen on working with us to develop the specific projects that we outlined in that document. Such as? Which are the nature of museum display, of architectural drawings, about the possibilities of cross-disciplinary workshops. That's something that's really hard to do down here, but which is by far the best way of generating, simulating conversations, is actually you you don't just have a group of young practicing architects all in the same position in their lives talking about the same thing. What you do is you might have five architects, two architectural historians, an anthropologist, an urbanist, and It's almost impossible to orchestrate down here, and which it's very easy to do if you're sitting in London within half a mile of UCL or King's or the LSE. I think there's other scope too, teaching in a slightly more systematic way, uh, inventing programmes with the architecture schools that last a whole term rather than one group parachuted in for an afternoon. Not to be devil's advocate overly here, but it's lovely here. It's this special place away from other places. You described the slight tension between the wider development of the farmyard and the collection, but as it exists and as it stands, there's a nice symbiosis. I am not overly concerned with sentimentality, but I must admit that there's a surprising feeling that that welled up inside me. I'm touched by that. Of course it's sad, but I also think that one has to be incredibly tough about these things and that if we are to prove the drawing matter model, let's call it that, in a way that's useful for the other archival institutions who, for whatever reason, can't address these questions directly. Just as a clarification point, other archival institutions, for example, the RIBA, other museums or institutions. So here you have been able to, over the last decade, build up a kind of separate flavour. I I think, Tim, we've done what we can here. That's a good way of putting it. I'm a fantastic believer in being very tough and realistic about those things. And no, it won't be the same London, but it will be better in some ways and less good in others. But the scope for expansion, very systematic inquiry, will be much greater. So from what I hear, things are a very advanced stage with this move. I freely admit it, we could be having a conversation in three months' time in which, as I say, we actually didn't find a space we particularly liked. Or we couldn't make these partnerships on precisely the terms that we wanted. But at this point, I'm full of excitement and hope about it. When do you think you'll be able to tell people about it? My feeling is that it will take now two or three months to explore the possibilities and probably that time or a little bit longer to find a space on exactly the right terms. But that will allow us to make a very full declaration of what we plan to do in the summer and to move in the early autumn. Are there any red lines for you? I see us as being able to bring in the collection probably twice as many students as we see at the moment. 
I see a huge opportunity to spread the inquiry beyond just architecture into other areas of design where we have actually a surprisingly strong holding. We were looking at some cinema designs earlier, whatever. I want to break down this very narrow definition of architecture. We met at the CCA when I was working there and you were a trustee. Our friend Mirko Zardini, I remember his his exhibitions, but also those of the, the late John Louis Cohen. And one of the things is that I was struck about that time and what characterises Drawing Matter for me is the understanding of the product of architectural creation. Drawings, yeah. preeminently, had a historical significance. Not an architectural historic significance, but a historical significance. And it sounds like a very easy sell. Yeah. But it requires a sophistication and knowledge and understanding of the conditions in which the architectural drawings were made and for what reason before you can start extrapolating that. And one of the things I was taken by with the document you sent was the quality which is laid in the acquisitions, but not necessarily there in the programming. Tim, it may be a personal observation, but one that I completely sympathise with. And a really formative experience for me was that I was very involved, gosh, now 20 years ago, with Richard Sennett and Ricky Burdett in the formation of the Cities Programme at the London School of Economics, which was an, is an urban design programme embedded in a social sciences institution. And in those early days, the most rewarding thing for all of us was that we had this cohort who were essentially designers, but there were people from other disciplines as well. But we were able to go through all the departments of the LSC and find these economists whose work was only intelligible to their own research students, it was so obscure, and say to them, no, but what you're researching plays out in the city, come to the city's programme and be an urbanist. And that was incredibly powerful for the students and incredibly liberating for the economist because actually suddenly he was there talking about how people actually behave on the ground. And it's those opportunities that I can see us developing in multiple different contexts. Don't lose the focus on design, but the focus on purely architecture will be diluted. It won't lose its focus on the design process. And that discussion will become more powerful and much more interesting given our opportunity in London to bring people in from many different intellectual and academic disciplines. Thank you so much. Let's see how that plays out. Well, exciting stuff to come. What a great way to start the year. Neil moves fast, so expect to hear some news of things later in the year. But for now, that's all from me and him. Please like, follow and subscribe Super Urbanism. And also, if you're new, please go back and listen to some earlier episodes. You'll soon realise that Super Urbanism is, in its early days, constantly evolving. But as it turns out, like talking to the people who are doing interesting stuff in a timely, newsworthy way. I'm a journalist, after all. Next week, we're going to talk about an event at one of Neil's old places of work, the Sir John Soane's Museum. Yes, it's January, so it's the time for the drawing prize. I'll be talking about the state of the art of drawing in architecture and its future. 
with Ken Shuttleworth, whose practice make is sponsor of the drawing prize and who've consistently innovated in the field of representation, drawing new technologies. So from the past of drawing to the future of drawing, thank you for listening to Super Urbanism, the podcast that dances about architecture. 2024, off in style. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs>